0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Yellowstone has undergone a number of transitions in its 140 years. The period from the late 1930s through the early 1970s marked one of the most significant, as the Park Service shifted focus from public recreation to interpretation and education. The vast wilderness and numerous natural spectacles of the park became less objects of passive enjoyment, more subjects to be engaged, interpreted, and understood by visitors. The park was transformed, in short, from a playground into a classroom. Charged with instituting these changes were five remarkable ranger naturalists who served as both protectors and educators. In his new book, Five Old Men of Yellowstone, published by University of Utah Press, Stephen Bidolph tells the story of those five men, his own father among them, tasked with inspiring a generation of visitors to the park. Stephen Bidolph is a son of one of the five old men, as I said. He spent his first 18 summers in Yellowstone National Park, He's been a lifelong student of Yellowstone. He's a retired Marine Corps officer, bit down veteran, mental health therapist, and drug addiction counselor. And he joins us today. Stephen Bidoff, welcome to the program.
1: Tom, thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: I'd like to start where you begin the book. You say the genesis for this project, A Labor of Love, no doubt, was two photographs. Tell us about those photographs.
1: Well, I discovered those photographs uh, in my father's personal papers uh, just soon after his death in 1985. Uh, The first photo was one of him in 1928 as a brand new ranger naturalist. He was serving at uh, Canyon Ranger Station, and uh, I noticed that on the back was my mother's writing, uh, said Lowell's first year, or first summer in Yellowstone. 1928. Uh, I looked at that picture, and that was a far different man than I knew. (laughs) I was the youngest of the six children. So by the time I was uh, old enough to really be involved with my father in Yellowstone, he already seemed a little bit old to me. Yeah, this... uh...
0: This picture. Sorry, is, uh, oh, the, the, I was just going to say, this picture is uh, qu- it must be quite extraordinary to you. He's he's a young man. He's in his early twenties. Has shaps on a cowboy hat. He's yeah. got his horse with him.
1: He's got that horse peeking over his shoulder, yeah. and that's how they got around in those days. Uh, so that was intriguing to me. But then I found the second picture that was taken years later. In fact, it was taken in August of 1960. Uh, it was a five-ranger naturalist, my father included, standing in front of Old Faithful Geyser while it was erupting. And there was a paperclip to that photograph. Was a uh an article that had been uh, published by the, I guess it was the National Park Service, probably Yellowstone administration. And it was entitled Five Old Men of Yellowstone. -hmm. And it had a little brief bio of each of the men. And as I looked at that, I realized that, you know, uh, the article indicated that they'd had 139 years or summers of service combined. But I also realized that it went far beyond the 1960s, it went clear up into the uh, late 70s. And I just began to realize what a tremendous legacy of knowledge and experience that these men had that really had not been told.
0: This is an extraordinary story of a, a period of, of a great transition in the park told through through the, uh, the words of these five extraordinary men. I wonder if you, uh, I know you have your book with you. Yes. And I wonder, um, you put this in perspective, when these men started their service and to when they ended it. Uh, this is in the introduction, Roman numeral uh, 16, page 16. I wonder if you'd read us the, the first three paragraphs there. Uh, hopefully this is the same. I've got the electronic version, but uh, right. it, it starts with interpretation interpretations an outgrowth uh, <clears throat> in the next three yes, paragraphs.
1: Uh, how much would you like me to uh, read the, there, the, uh, just, uh, the, paragraph? Uh, the,
0: the first three paragraphs on that page.
1: Okay. <clears throat> Interpretation was an outgrowth of these principles of education and conservation and rose to a high watermark during this time. An interpretive division was formally created and interpretive services developed that included nature walks, cone talks, campfire programs, auto caravans and game stocks. The five old men and others helped develop and lead the programs within all three districts of Yellowstone. They grew old in the service to the Grand old Park and retired when interpretation and enlightenment were superseded by mass information, technology, and specialized research. To put their time of service into historical perspective, Yellowstone National Park was only 56 years old when the first of these five men began service in the summer of 1928. Only 50 years had passed since the Nez Perce indian War and their flight through the park. The US cavalry had abandoned Fort Yellowstone only 10 years earlier, and the spread eagle men were still the leadership corps in Yellowstone. The automobile had replaced the horse and stagecoach only 13 years earlier, in 1915. As the establishment of the Ranger-Naturalist Division was still 10 years out. The Yellowstone of the five old men is gone. In 1990, Merrill Beale, the last of these five men, died, leaving no one to tell her story except someone from the second generation. And so as the son of one of these men, and one who knew all of them to some extent, I make the attempt. I'm not a historian by training, only by passion. And my objective in writing this history is only to tell their story of the grand old park as they knew it, and to provide a rare insight into an era now lost to time.
0: Yeah, this is just extraordinary. 1928, uh, as you say, not that far removed from the Nasturs Indian War and and, uh, yeah. and the U.S. Cavalry, cavalry at the Fort Yellowstone. I wonder if you'd take us back uh, to, to before this era. I was interested to learn that uh, you know, the, the park was created. Later, it was expanded, um, and then there were there were troubles. In, in how do we how to enforce the rules? How do we patrol this? And the U.S. Army at one point was was sent out to the to the park to do
1: patrols. That's correct. Well. I don't know how far back you want me to go, but voice. <laughs> uh, after its creation in March of, uh, one, uh, or, uh, excuse me, forgive my voice, after its creation in March of 1971,
0: 1871,
1: excuse me, 1872, when it was signed into law by Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, the park was really not, not well designated, and it was, uh, there was a real confusion in terms of what it really meant to the nation, and how to administer these things. It, it was almost like kind of a knee-jerk reaction, oh, these are wonderful, beautiful resources, and we need to protect them, so let's create a law. And they did, and they created the first national park, but then came the problem. How do we administer this park?" And among the things that started to happen was that, uh, uh, well, first of all, Congress didn't uh, provide any funds. Uh, They gave little support, if anything, to the park. There was no laws established to regulate uh, tourist visits. Uh, And so it was just left vulnerable. But the only saving factor to Yellowstone was the fact that it was inaccessible. Uh, Until the railroads brought uh, tracks close to Yellowstone in the late 1880s and the early 1900s, it was very difficult to get to the park. Hmm. And so most of the time you just had, uh, at the beginning, people riding horseback through uh, uh, with guided tours along trails. But then we start to see roads start to be developed. And, of course, with the railroads coming in, their money and their interest in promoting the park really expanded the wealthy people able to come to the park. Well, I guess maybe a long story short, um, we start to see Yellowstone develop. Uh, But at the same time, we see this... uh, Back in the 1880s, this uh, massive amount of slaughter of wild animals, especially the big game. You see elk and buffalo and uh, bighorn sheep, antelope, uh, all of these, bighorn, or these uh, big game animals were being destroyed, and that was true in Yellowstone as well.
0: Uh, to the point, I think, where people coming through complained to the superintendent, we're, we're not seeing any animals out here.
1: Toledus Norris was the superintendent, he was the second superintendent, and that's right, people came to him and said, hey, we're we're taking all this time to go through the park, we're not seeing anything, Uh, what's happening here? So the park went into the protective mode, and finally funds were given to them. Uh, The army, the, the cavalry came in, I think it was 56 men. Uh, under command of uh, uh, Captain Moses, uh, about 1886. They came and established Fort Yellowstone and uh, Hot Springs, and then they sp- expanded out through the park to the key places, like Canyon, Lake, Old Faithful, and, and back along the boundary country, to try and protect against poachers and, and uh, tourists coming through. Mm.
0: It's interesting to me that uh, it's not as, as codified as it is now. It, it wasn't at end, that point. It, it took a I guess a, a policy and edict from the Secretary of the Interior to protect the, the bison.
1: Well, it did. In fact, I think it was 1883 that the Secretary of the Interior uh, indicated that uh, okay, no longer will you uh, will killing or hunting in Yellowstone be allowed. But then came the problem of, of of enforcing that, and that's where the army came into play, where they put out these rangers, all or army's people, all through Yellowstone in the backcountry, and, and they just tried to protect, and it, it didn't work very well. Uh, Felita Sonora's hired a, a old mountain man named uh, uh, last name is Yount. Uh, back in the early 80s, and and he, tasked him with single-handedly trying to take care of all of this and, and manage the animals, and within a year, he came to the realization this wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And so they hired uh, assistant uh, superintendents, a corps of men, and that didn't prove to be very effective either. Eventually, the Army left uh, the, in 1916. Uh, the National Park Service was founded under the head of or directorship of Stephen Ting Mather and Horace Albright was his assistant. Horace Albright in 1919 became uh, was appointed the first uh, superintendent of Yellowstone Park under the new National Park Service. So uh, that, that's where the foundation of all of this protection and eventually interpretation and education came to play. Uh, The army eventually left. The National Park Service took over. But many of the old uh, army men stayed on in the park. They, They jumped ship and went from the army to the National Park Service. My father, who came the park the summer of 1928. He was the first of the men to come. Uh, And and truthfully, two or three of the other men uh, came under the tutorship of these old army scouts. These were men that knew nature. uh, They weren't educated uh, in the the sciences, but they were educated. They had PhDs in practical education in nature. They knew how to hunt, how to uh, make their way through the forest without trails, they knew all these things that, that these new rangers and ranger naturalists coming in, who had some college education, were, uh, were educated on, and so it was a great education for my father, uh, one that he never forgot.
0: We're talking with Stephen Biddulph on the program today. We're going to take a short break. Um, His book is Five Old Men of Yellowstone, The Rise of Interpretation in the First National Park. Stephen Biddulph is son of one of these five men. Um, And uh, these men worked in the park in a very interesting uh, period of transition from the late 1930s through the early 1970s. When the Park Service shifted focus from public recreation to interpretation and education, the park was transformed from a playground into a classroom. And uh, these men instituted um, initiatives such as nature walks, campfire programs, game stocks, and auto caravans. They were tasked with inspiring a generation of visitors to the park. Some interesting stories from these five old men. We'll get to to talking about those. Um, Including, Stephen Bidoff. I'll I'll have you talk about uh, uh, bear talks interesting that they had bears right there i guess yes. um and in fact a couple of bears and and sometimes you'd get bear fights uh, that that's no longer I, I would have liked to have gone to the park in that era but we'll, we'll talk about that
2: following the break did you know that by repeatedly tasting fruits and vegetables children can increase their liking of these foods to accomplish this parents should supply a fruit and a vegetable at lunch and dinner Small incentives are a good way to promote initial and repeated tasting of these foods. As your child learns to enjoy fruits and vegetables, the incentives become unnecessary. Make it fun and you will make a difference in your child's food choices. Did You Know That? is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts presents the Bar J. Wranglers with cowboy stories, jokes, and western harmonies straight from the range. Saturday, December 21st at 1.30 and 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-0026.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about Yellowstone National Park, a very important uh, portion of the history there. Of course, Yellowstone is the first national park, and it's undergone a number of transitions in its 140 years. A period from the late 1930s through the early 1970s marked one of the most significant transitions. The Park Service shifted its focus from public recreation to interpretation and education. And in many ways, the park became uh, the, the park it is today through that period. Charged with instituting these changes were five remarkable ranger naturalists who served as both protectors and educators. And uh, Stephen Bidoff recounts their story and the park story in his book, Five Old Men of Yellowstone, The Rise of Interpretation in the First National Park. published by University of Utah Press. Uh, You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like. love to get your perspective, maybe your Yellowstone memory. You can join us uh, through our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You can join us through email. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Stephen Biddoff, the... I would imagine with the arrival of the railroad and, of course, uh, the the automobile especially, uh, people came for recreation in increasing numbers, and the, the founding laws have maybe purposely vague language as to what National Park is supposed to be.
1: That's true. Uh, like uh, when we first began talking about this, they park when it was first established was quite nebulous. Uh, it was left quite unprotected. That included the laws. Uh, for instance, there was absolutely no regulation at the time in terms of how to, uh, be with, or how to interact with geysers, with animals. There was no regulation about climbing in the canyon, and, and that became a huge pastime for people. You know, it's a 1,200-foot uh, uh, slide, of loose uh, rock, uh, very dangerous, and of course it's a beautiful canyon. But but people were going up and down those things like crazy. Uh, my father reports in his history that while he was stationed at Canyon, he had they had to rescue people almost daily out of the canyon with their ropes. So yeah, uh, I, I don't want to get off track. Keep me on track here, but. Nope. Yeah,
0: yeah, I was just I was just saying that the, the you know early on, and you make the point in the book. Um, I think the nation saw the national parks as, as you know as a playground. You go and you enjoy, you have fun. It was only later that you that you go to learn about things.
1: Well, yes, yeah, so and that, that's an important transition here. Uh, the park, you know, from my perspective. Uh, really came from uh, uh, in a kind of a continuum from discovery to creation to uh, protection. It, it became so crucial to protect the park from the very people that created it. We just didn't know how to deal with nature, mm. uh, and and of course our curiosity and the beautiful, wonderful. Uh, uh, natural features that are found in Yellowstone were such a huge intrigue that, that people came and, and just out of natural curiosity and human nature were destructive to the park and, and intruded upon it. So we didn't come very quietly like the Native American did, and lightly we came heavily. And uh, so... There was just lacking this uh, this information and this knowledge. Well, then you find the park trying to move from education or from protection to education, and and truthfully, education Tom was a um, a method in the madness to protect Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freeman Tilden, in his book about national parks, talks about this concept. Uh, where he talks about uh, that that we teach people, educate them, inspire them in nature, and, and by the appreciation that they receive and the inspiration they receive by being in nature, they become themselves the stewards of Yellowstone and of all of nature. And so out of this uh, protective era kind of arose this conservationism, uh, an education, where the park started to develop an education system. Uh, if I get too far off base here, let me know. Pull me oh, back. But. Okay.
0: I wonder if you. Would, I wonder if you tell me about your about your father and these other the other men. Uh, it's interesting. You you talk about the position of park ranger in the 1920s. It became glamorized. Uh, to yep. according to, you, to such extent that the young men applying for summer jobs had a distorted concept of the work. And the, there came this expression, 90-day wonder, which was originally pejorative, but then uh, I think one of these five old men changed that to, uh, to emphasize the, the work that these people did.
1: Very much so. Uh, the 90-day wonder, of course, arose out of this attempt by the park to... Uh, develop a core of rangers that were educated. If, if you were going to turn Yellowstone into a, a classroom or into an education, uh, then you had to have teachers. And that was the philosophy. Uh, museums became, cla- uh, became little lecture halls, little uh, labels of, of the nature around them. But, but the men themselves uh, became educated. They, uh, my father was uh, educated at Brigham Young University. He uh, graduated from there in the spring of 28. Uh, although he would go on to be a college coach and uh, high school coach of athletics and physical education, his, uh, one of his training areas was geology and his great passion was geology. Uh, another of these men, uh, Wayne, well, not so much Wayne Rupplogel, he was more eclectic, but uh, uh, Bud Listrup was a biologist, uh, and George Marlar, of course, was the premier uh, expert in uh, geothermal activity in Yellowstone and geysers and hot springs. And Sam Beale, or Merrill D. Beal was one of the leading historians at the time in the park. So all of these men and they're just representative of a whole group of men and women that came to the park, but they came as educators and they came to teach in Yellowstone and inspire. Uh, I, I do need to add this. I think this is important during this era of the late twenties. Uh, well, it goes clear back into the late eighteen hundreds, but. Uh, 1920s and 30s uh, we were big time into inspiration and Yellowstone was seen by people like John Muir, John Burroughs and others uh, as these wilderness cathedrals where people could come and put away the cities and and the urban living and come into nature and be renewed and revived and into the writings and the lectures that I heard these men give when I was a boy, uh, they were rich with that inspiration, and that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to take people into nature and, and inspire them. And through inspiration would also come education and appreciation And that's what they wanted to do. It wasn't just to protect Yellowstone; it Mm. was to inspire a world. Uh, And I watched this firsthand as a a youngster. Uh, I went to their uh, on their nature walks. I went to their campfire lectures. I went with my father on different different places where he gave talks and things. And and there, you know, people from all around the world came. Mm. Yellowstone. And, and it became a great unifying factor in, in the world, but especially in the nation. So that's kind of how we just saw this whole thing progress. And, and these men, during this 40-year period, from about 1930, roughly, to 1970, early 70s, played such an important role in developing and uh, conducting these educational programs for, for thousands and thousands of people.
0: Uh, we're talking with Stephen Bidoff, by the way, on, the, on uh, Access Utah today. Five Old Men of Yellowstone is his book. It's published by University of Utah Press. Uh, it's about uh, five men who uh, served, uh, what was it, what, about 180 seasons among them?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, 180 by, is good. It was probably by just the maybe end? one or two above.
0: Yeah. Um, his fathers uh, among these, these were uh, ranger naturalists who were charged with uh, inspiring people in in the park, generations of visitors to the park, as the park made the transition from recreation to uh, education, interpretation. And you're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like. Uh, via our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You can comment there. You can email us at upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. And on our uh, Facebook page, a couple of people have liked our post. By the way, it's uh, Rangers, uh, an old black-and-white photo in front of uh, Old Faithful. I believe this is the uh, the first photograph of, of Old Faithful. Uh, Casey Byrne and uh, Daniel Carolyn. Have uh, liked our post. Thank you for that. Stephen Bidoff with us uh, for another uh, some twenty minutes. You're welcome to join this uh, this conversation. So, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, some of the, um, I, I guess, traditions that these men um, instituted. Campfire programs, auto caravans, uh, game stocks. What what are over game stocks?
1: Well, uh, game stocks were uh, where people would get in their cars. And led by a ranger in his pickup, they would drive various places, uh, usually in the evening, and uh, look for animals. Uh, so they'd drive out along by meadows and up mountains and look for elk and buffalo and birds and anything. And they weren't very effective, truthfully, but you because know, you couldn't really stop and you have a whole line of cars. But... Uh, that that's what a game stock was.
0: Oh, interesting! Then you have auto caravans. Of course, we're you know familiar, perhaps, with the, with the campfire programs. Yeah. I wonder, what if you could tell me about this? this? This is fascinating to me. Bear talks. <laughs>
1: uh, well, uh, there were the black bear and the grizzly bear uh, that are uh, native to Yellowstone. Were probably as intoxicating as the geysers to the visitors. And so uh, back in the 1920s, uh, they developed uh, what they called bear feeding shows. They ran them at two places. One was in uh, Old Faithful, and the other was at a place called Otter Creek uh, near Canyon. These uh, shows were essentially staged. They'd uh, build a big platform at a strategic point near a hillside. <clears throat> and on that platform, they'd put all kinds of garbage from the hotels and uh, all kinds of food scraps uh, to entice the bears to come, uh, especially the grizzlies. A few blacks came in, but, but mostly grizzlies. Uh, this was, that was their hook. Uh, the grizzly liked the garbage feeding shows. The black bear became a roadside junkie. Uh, sitting out on the roads begging for food well these bear feeding shows then were hosted by a ranger probably the most famous uh, of the group was a a fellow named uh, Philip Martindale they called him Major Martindale Uh, he was uh, uh, just absolutely a showman but uh, all the people would come in, they'd sit on Kind of logs or benches on the hillside, and and then uh, watch these big grizzlies. Uh, sometimes, believe it or not, sometimes they counted as many as a hundred grizzlies would come to these feeding shows. At one night, uh, the bears would come in, and of course, the people would have the opportunity to watch the grizzly up close, fairly up close uh, in its feeding habits and. Of course, the ranger would lecture and talk to them about the gestation periods and the, the lifestyle of bears, and so it was really quite a, quite a phenomenal experience, very dangerous. <laughs>
0: yeah, was there any barrier between the people and the bears?
1: Well, there was usually some type of a trench uh, and, a, and a barbed wire fence, but to be truthful, it was practically nothing. Hmm. Wayne Replogle, who served as a, a rifle guard at these things, uh, made that comment. He said, "I started to beg the people to put some type of barrier up uh, to protect, uh, just in case." And, and he said, "Finally, they put a fence up." And he said, "That didn't stop the bears." But uh, and yeah. they had a couple of really, you know, dangerous experiences. In fact, in 1935. It was one of those experiences that shut down the whole bear show, and they never did them again. Hmm. Uh,
0: and sometimes fights would break out between bears. That must have been quite the attraction.
1: for people. Well, my book has uh, a just an uh, absolutely remarkable uh, explanation or a description of a bear fight that took place at Old Faithful. Uh, it must have been probably 1932. Both Wayne Replogle and Bud Listrup were there and saw this, but there uh, a huge grizzly, they, that they named Scarface, uh, came into uh, and just you know the people were watching the bears and all of a sudden they stood up just spontaneously and started shouting and pointing and, and off in the edge of the forest there. Scarface had come. He was uh, all of eight feet tall, according to Rep. Uh, and They had measured that in some way, and just massive, and he just towered over the other bears. There, there was another bear there they called Henry the Ape, and Henry the Ape was a young bear. Scarface was old, he'd had a lot of fights, and they got into a fight uh right there on the platform and the people sat there and watched these two grizzlies just tear each other apart and finally uh the younger bear uh but a smaller bear actually uh came out victor and scarface was defeated he moved off into the forest and i think they said next year they saw him come back he was blind uh he bumped into trees he he was very unhealthy and then after that he disappeared and they figured that he didn't make it through the winter he mm. died
0: wow so this uh, of course with today's sensibilities would be to put it mildly frowned upon this whole <laughs> oh. you know putting bird, uh, attracting bears uh, using them for for a, a backdrop for your lecture um but that's that's the way it was in those days
1: That's right. Uh, It would be frowned on, and and rightfully so. Uh, These were, you know, uh, somebody like me, who I I can't honestly say I witnessed the bear shows because I wasn't born at that time, but I witnessed the roadside junkies and all of the bear uh, jams on the highways and and all of those things. And uh, they were spectacular. They were amazing. They were just thrilling, but they were so terribly unhealthy for the, for the bears and for the people. Mm. So, you're right. Today, we've learned a lot, uh, and, and uh, these men were kind of uh, also helpful in promoting naturalism for bears, getting the bears off the highways, ending the shows of... And and getting the black bear and the grizzly back into nature and trying to establish some kind of reasonable balance between visitors that come wanting to see bears and the safety of the the bears.
0: The passage you uh, had you read from the introduction. You you say these these men retired about the time or. Now it's moved from uh, the interpretation the way it was to mass communication and specialized science. Yes, but uh, imagine there are there are some legacies from uh, what your father was trying to establish that that live on in interpretation and so forth in the park.
1: Well, there are uh, three out of the four original trailside museums are still in existence in the park. Old Faithful is the only one that fell victim. Uh, the the museums were replaced by what has been called visitor centers, uh, and then education centers later. They've got two big education centers, one in Old Faithful and one at, uh, I believe, Canyon. They're wonderful facilities. Uh, but the museums are kind of a legacy of the old education interpretation era. Uh we no longer, you know, we look at Yellowstone now as its own museum. It's um and and it has its own labels, and the and the labels are living. And with a good pair of binoculars and some information, uh, visitors to the park can go and with a little luck, can see nature in action. Uh, I still go into the old or the Fishing Bridge Museum where I grew up as a kid, and and it's still very interesting and busy. People are there looking at the cases and the birds and animals. Uh, another legacy that remains is is certainly campfires. Uh, they're not nearly as uh, pervasive as they were, and they are done differently. Um, But uh, there are still some campfires to be found, campfire lectures. Uh, Occasionally, you'll find nature walks. Mm -hmm. But uh, for the most part, uh, Yellowstone has become so proliferated with the wonderful material that has been developed over the years that really began with Yellowstone nature notes and observations back the time of these old men.
0: And with this legacy, of course, your your father's one of these five old men of Yellowstone. You spent yeah. your first eighteen years in in summers in in Yellowstone. When when you go today, what uh, where do you go? What's with with your perspective? What do you what do you suggest people go and see?
1: Well, of course, if you haven't been to Yellowstone, you just have to see the major major things of attraction. You've got to see the geyser basins. Norris Geyser Basin is one of the hottest geyser basins in, in the Yellowstone. Uh, the upper and lower geyser basins around uh, the Firehole are are bus seas. Canyon, uh, you, you have to go see the canyon. Uh, in the northern part of Yellowstone, of course, uh, uh, one of my favorite places is uh, Hay- uh, not Hayden Valley, but Lamar Valley. Uh, it's, it just, whenever I go back to the Lamar and see the wolves and see the buffalo herds and the elk herds and such, I I feel like I've stepped 200 years back into history. Hmm. Uh, but of course my favorite is, is Fishing Bridge in the lake area, but I'm biased because that's where I was raised. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it just... To me, it combined everything that was good about Yellowstone. You could find some geysers there, not many, but some. But you had the beautiful lake, and you had the fishing, and you had all of the birds that were there, all of the animals, big uh, big game animals. Uh, and and then you had the mountains. Uh, the Absarica Mountains were our favorite mountains. My father took us hiking into those mountains just every time he... Had an opportunity, mm. and to stand on top of those eleven thousand foot peaks, and look out across Yellowstone, see the lake, and see all the valleys, and see the majestic plateaus uh, that were formed by by uh, the great caldera and the explosions of volcanoes and everything is is just remarkable. Uh, as John Muir said, John, and John Burroughs. Uh, the forests call me and I must go. Mm. And uh, I think I picked up the same stuff that my dad had. Mm. Uh, and all five of these men, and and the men that worked with them, they were nature lovers, every one of them to the very end.
0: Is that, is that why your father and these five men, is that why you still go? Spiritual renewal? Is that? Oh, yeah. Does that sum it up?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I go to Yellowstone each year as a my trip to Mecca. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. And you must you must follow that uh, all of these events with, with great interest. For example, we did a program recently on the, the history of the reintroduction of the wolf to Yellowstone. Uh, yes. Must, must all of these things must be of great interest to you. Uh, I want to fit in a, a couple of um, stories that I found fascinating, your book uh, from the history, sure. uh, before we close. We have another five minutes or so. Uh, one of those, you have a chapter called Black Alice and Prohibition. You, you yeah. don't, we don't tend to think of Prohibition affecting a national park. We t- tend to think of that as an urban thing. Right. There, there, there's a fascinating history there. There
1: is. Would you like me to uh, comment uh, on uh, that?
0: Yes, yes. Tell, tell the story, especially of Black Alice.
1: Well, uh, of course, when, when the amendment was passed and the Volstead Act was enforced, Yellowstone was left to enforce itself. So, what came to the ranger naturalists to really enforce this, uh, and of course, I don't think they were well equipped. They weren't. A lot of these guys weren't police trained. So, the only way to to curb it and stop it was to catch it at the gates. Of course, there were five entrances uh, into Yellowstone, and because of manpower problems and other things, uh, they. You know, uh, they could, it was only hit and miss. Well, uh, in 1930, uh, there was a woman who lived out in Montana, and her husband worked during the summers at uh, I think it was Canyon. The rancher suspected them of bootlegging, and that he was running some kind of a bootlegging operation inside Yellowstone, and she was bringing in the in the alcohol. And the park, the chief park ranger finally got so upset that uh, Black Alice, her name was, she just had to run of the park. Nobody could stop her, and she just felt like she had all kinds of privileges, and she would just scoot right by the gate and honk her horn, and and uh, nobody could catch him. And so they finally said, "Stop, Black Alice." Well, my father that summer was stationed up at uh, Dunraven Pass, and by mount washburn and they transferred him down to uh the north entrance at uh by mammoth thought springs he was on guard that that day when black alice came through and she tooted her horn and shot past and dad wasn't about to let that go so he <laughs> left the other ranger and he commandeered a an automobile and stood on the running board and he said, Follow that car <laughs> and off up the road towards Mammoth they went. And he was holding on to his Stetson hat and and onto the car and uh, up the road they went. They finally caught her. And my dad was a mild mannered man, but pretty dogged. He he told her, he says, I need you to come back to gate with me and and she kind of said, Oh, well, what's wrong, Mr. Ranger? And you know, all this and when he when he wouldn't give in to her and made her come back, she got pretty angry with him and accused him of not being familiar with her rights and privileges. To end the story: uh, they got her back there, went through her stuff, and found several bottles bottles of liquor. And she and her husband were apprehended. And, uh, those kind of stories were, were quite interesting to me. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's and it's an illustration to me that uh, Yellowstone is very much interconnected with its with its surrounding you know gateway communities. These during during Prohibition, for example, many of these communities had their saloons and they they weren't about to obey Prohibition, so the park was going to be affected.
1: Well, of old. That Act essentially didn't eliminate alco- alcohol. It uh, swept it under the rug, and it went uh, black market. And the same thing happened around Yellowstone. Mm. You're right.
0: I wonder, uh, we just have a couple minutes left. I'm, I'm fascinated by the early firefighting uh, yes. h- history. I wonder if you could uh, just give us a couple minutes on that. It's, this is kind of an, in microcosm uh, the beginnings of, of us trying to establish our policy toward fire
1: the protection of Yellowstone's forests were looked at in the same conservationist uh, approach as bears and everything else. So it was, uh, hey, if a fire breaks out, you find it, you fight it, you put it out at all costs. Now, many of the fires were uh, ultimately put out because of Mother Nature cooperated and dumped rain on them, but they were fought aggressively. And all five of these men, uh, along with their colleagues, were involved with forest fighting. My father went out and spotted fires. Uh, Wayne Replogle did. Uh, They were camp bosses. Uh, During the World War II years, when most of the manpower was gone out of Yellowstone, my father and a few others were sent out to fight fires. And you know what they used for for manpower? They used the, the Japanese, who had been incarcerated at Heart Mountain, Hmm. uh Because of the uh, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, and these men came out and fought those fires.
0: interesting well we're we're yeah. just about out of time. Um, I assume uh, you say you go back every year. you yes. you take your I guess you did you take your children now grandchildren? It's a family they, thing still?
1: We have 21 grandchildren, and uh, I do everything I can to indoctrinate them, to love Yellowstone and to love nature.
0: Yeah, so I'm sure your your father would be very pleased with that. No, I uh, hope so. Yeah. Stephen Biddulph, uh tells the story of the five men, his own father among them, tasked with inspiring a generation of visitors to Yellowstone National Park. The book is Five Old Men of Yellowstone, The Rise of Interpretation in the First National Park. Uh, Stephen Bedolf is a lifelong student of Yellowstone, spent his first 18 summers in Yellowstone Park. He's a retired Marine Corps officer, Vietnam veteran, mental health therapist, drug addiction counselor, and uh, is married with six children 19 grandchildren. The uh, book is out from University of Utah Press, uh, out and available. Stephen Bedolf, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Tom, thank you so much for having me on.
0: And uh, coming up tomorrow... We're going to respond to the U.S. District Court Judge decision. This is all over the news, of course, over the weekend. Um, Judge Clark Waddups has sided with the polygamist Brown family, ruling that key parts of Utah's polygamy laws are unconstitutional. We'll be talking with Rebecca Musser about her uh, book on her time growing up in the fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints community. In her teens, she became the 19th wife of the— That group's prophet, 85-year-old Rulon Jeffs, Warren Jeffs' uh, father, she uh, later, after she had left the group, was uh, a witness against Warren Jeffs and others. The book is The Witness War Red, The 19th Wife Who Brought Polygamous Cult Leaders to Justice. That's tomorrow on the program. For producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts presents The Bar J. Wranglers with cowboy stories, jokes, and western harmonies straight from the range. Saturday, December 21st at 1.30 and 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-0026.
3: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. I'd like
4: to take a moment to reflect on the amazing weather phenomenon that is a snowflake. When winter weather dumps inches of snow upon us, it's easy to overlook the tiny works of art, those intricate and delicate snowflakes which make up the storm. Snowflakes, or to use a more scientific term, snow crystals, come in a variety of different shapes, including long thin needles, flat hexagonal plates, columns, and irregularly shaped pellets called graupel. The International Snow Classification System recognizes 10 different shapes in all, only one of which is the traditional snowflake image. The classic six-armed snowflake shape is called a stellar dendrite by scientists. When teaching programs about snow, someone inevitably asks me, is it really true that no two snowflakes are alike? And as far as I can tell, the answer is, well, maybe. And here's why. Three things are needed to form these intricate crystals. And the first two are fairly obvious. Water and temperatures below freezing. The third item is a little more inconspicuous. Water cannot condense and freeze all on its own. Every snowflake needs a piece of atmospheric dust or salt at its core. This particle is referred to as a nucleating agent and it attracts the water molecules, which then condense and begin to freeze. From there, a snowflake's overall shape is determined by a number of other variables, including atmospheric temperature, the amount of available moisture, wind speed, and mid-air collisions with other snowflakes. To add more complexity, consider that each individual snowflake contains somewhere on the order of 10 quintillion water molecules. That's a 10 with 18 zeros behind it. While the way these molecules bind to each other is dictated by the laws of physics, the sheer number of ways in which 10 quintillion water molecules can arrange themselves as they freeze into place is mind-boggling. But then again, how many snowflakes do you think fall in the typical March snowstorm in Utah? A lot. One scientist has estimated that the number of individual snowflakes that have fallen on Earth in the planet's history is 10 with 34 zeros behind it. In all of those snowflakes, is it possible that there are two exactly alike? Well, yeah, maybe. But good luck finding them. For more information and some beautiful snowflake photographs, please visit our website at www.wildaboututah.org. Thank you to the Rocky Mountain Power Foundation for supporting the research and development of this Wild About Utah topic. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator.
3: Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Lloyd Berenson, director of the Bear River Health Department, During wintertime inversions, parents often wonder if their child should go outside for recess. Most school principals follow a set of recess guidelines developed by the Utah State Office of Education, the Department of Environmental Quality, and the Utah Department of Health. According to these guidelines, recess activities may be adjusted as the air quality gets worse. Parents should inform the school if they believe their child is part of a sensitive group that should have limited outdoor physical activity when the air quality is poor. It is uncommon for the air quality to be poor enough in Cache Valley to cancel recess for all students.
4: The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our Community Engagement Reporting Project. To join our Public Insight Network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan. KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.